This is the Big Pond. Testing one, two, three. Chris Strachwitz is a man possessed. Back in the saddle again. A song catcher capturing and recording the traditional regional down-home music of America, his adopted home, after his family left Germany at the close of World War II. Chris Strachwitz is a keeper. His vault is jam-packed with 78s, LPs, 45s, reel-to-reels, cassettes, videos, an archive of all manner of recordings and an avalanche of Lifetime Achievement Awards from the Grammys, the Blues Hall of Fame, the National Endowment for the Arts, for some 60 years of recording and preserving the musical cultural heritage of this nation. For The Big Pond, the Kitchen Sisters present The Passion of Chris Strachwitz. Bueno, al pesar de que ha sido un servidor de ustedes, el conjunto de Lugar con sus estrellas, Alma Latina was the name of the club. It was a wonderful dance hall. There were young kids there, there were old people, middle ages. It was a colorful place, but I had a hell of a time recording that conjunto. The two guys sang into one microphone, thank God. They're not like hippies, all have to have their own their microphone. It's a rough recording, but God damn, we caught it. <laughs> Chris Rockwitz, first of all, is very tall, eagle nose, makes him look wise and learned, which is mainly opinionated. He can back his opinions up with a lot of information that he's acquired over the years, especially about blues and ethnic music, like Mexican music that comes out of Texas. It's got a German bass to it. Gave him points in my book because I'm Mexican-German. You know, I always say that the Germans came to Mexico and Mexico took German music and made it sexy. <laughs> He's deeply suspicious of all music that's layered like oil paintings, the kind of music that I make, <laughs> and pop music in general. But we're working on educating about that. I don't know if it'll ever happen since he's now, what, 80? 87. I don't think he's going to change his opinion. I'm Linda Ronstadt, Tucson, Arizona. My name is Chris Strachwitz. I was born in a little village in Lower Silesia, southeast of Berlin. In 1931, we had a very large farm. It was the kind of castle, I guess you could say, in the little village. We were part of the aristocracy. I was called a Count von Strachwitz. I just had an incredibly wonderful childhood. Private tutors, woods and forests, ideal for hunting deer and pheasants and rabbits and wild boar. There was constant hunting parties. When my parents came back from a trip to the United States, 1938, they brought back a bunch of records. I thought they were just neat objects. I collected coins, I collected stamps too. I thought they were just a window to the world. And records were a window to sounds that I never would have heard. 
there was a wonderful record that we had on our wind-up machine called Die Berliner Luft. Oh, wie schön ist die Berliner Luft, 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 die Berliner Luft, 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 die Berliner Luft, Luft, Luft. Anyway, it came from an operetta. And one day my father walked into the room and he said, Christian, you can't listen to that record anymore. And I said, why? I love it. It's such a neat song and it had such a good feeling, joy to it. Well, the composer is a Jew. If the Nazi leader here in the village hears about us playing Jewish music, he can give me all kinds of static. The Allies won the war. Stalin and Roosevelt and Churchill met to decide what to do about dividing up Germany to reward the countries that won the war. The Soviet Union desperately wanted a big piece of Germany. In late winter of 1945, we had to flee before the Russians came because we were considered capitalists. We knew that the Soviet army that was invading that part of Germany was not particularly obeying the rules of war. And I can't blame him one bit considering what Germany did to the Soviet Union. I mean, almost destroyed the whole country, you know. So they got even and they got a big chunk of Germany. I still visualize how we left that day. We were all stashed into this wagon with a tractor in front. We could already hear the shooting across the Oder River. I didn't know where we were going. We were loaded down with whatever we could carry, which was things that we could eat, you know. That image is still pretty strong with me. Our mother's mother had been an American, and her aunts were so keen to immediately after the war help us and try to get us out of Germany. My father had to stay behind. He had to be denazified because he had been the member of the party. Although I never heard him speak fondly of Hitler or anything. It was strictly like here, being a, a Republican. Well, you know, you're for big business, you better join the National Socialist German Workers' Party, the Nazis. My mother and six of his children came in 1947 to our great aunt in Reno, Nevada. I was 16. I had hardly had much schooling from 45 to 47. I spoke relatively little English. I was listening to the radio. That was really my ear to the world. <laughs> and I heard hillbilly music. Oh, God, I thought this was the neatest sounding music I ever heard. The station in Rosarito Beach in Baja, California was beamed north. They called itself the Voice of the West. Or this was the Maddox Brothers and Rhodes coming your way over XERB. <laughs> well, I woke up this morning. Looked outdoors. I can tell my milk cow. I can tell by the way she lows. If you see my milk cow. I was sent to the Kate School in Santa Barbara. It was a very elitist private high school. I was so skinny they called me the pencil. I would sneak sometimes off during our break, run to my room and turn on XERB. And, and that had that Mexican DJ, you know, absolutely alive. He would broadcast in English. It was all hillbilly records. Actually sent an application to the radio station saying, what does it take to become a disc jockey on XCRB? And they actually answered back saying, well, the first requirement is that you be a Mexican national, 
Well, that's what I shot it down <laughs> right there. So I got into hillbilly music and jazz. I'd heard that the Kirori band was playing in Montecito in a small club, so I just took off, hitchhiked, but I couldn't get in because I wasn't old enough. And so I stood outside and listened to the band. And then when I came back to school, Mr. Cape chewed me out. <laughs> I was in a way shy, but in other ways I wasn't. If I wanted to hear something or I ever felt like I wanted to do something, I did it. I just had to hear that music. I was listening to Hunter Hancock's program over KFVD in Los Angeles. By the mid-50s, I was a total Lightning Hopkins fan. It's the same radio station that Woody Guthrie played on back in the 30s. Have you ever loved a woman? Man better than you did yourself. When I went to UC Berkeley in 54, I had met Sam Charters. Sam was working on his book, The Country Blues, you know, the very first blues book. And I got a postcard from him. Chris, I found Lightning Hopkins. He lives here in Houston, Texas. And so I literally took a pilgrimage, took a Greyhound to Houston, and Mac McCormick took me to meet Lightning. That Just a little beer joint, you know. Lightning was singing this amazing blues that's totally made up on the spot about how it had been raining and how his shoulder was aching and how his car almost didn't get there because he couldn't see the chuck holes in the road. But he rhymed it all up. And then he pointed his hand. Oh, this man come all the way from California just to hear Paul Lightning sing. Max said, you have a car and you've got your recorder. Why don't we go up the country? and see if we can find, there must be a lot of these singers like Lightning. I said, I better start doing some detective work. And I saw people in a field next to the highway, you know, so we stopped. Do you know of any good guitar pickers in these parts? <laughs> oh, well, you better go to Navasota for that. All I had was a record by Lightning about Tom Moore's farm. And Tom Moore actually lived in this town. It's a pretty powerful song. Yeah, you know it ain't but the one thing. There ain't but the one thing this black man done wrong, but moved his wife and family on Mr. Tom Moore's you farm. You know this black man he did was wrong. So we stopped at the first feed store we saw. Uh, does Tom Moore live in this town? Yeah, yes, you know Mr. Moore sure does. He invited us to come to his office. Yeah, Mac right away said, well, can we possibly visit your plantation? Do you know of anybody who plays for your hands here in town? What was that? You know that's when I moved my wife and family. Tom Moore said, I don't know his name, but you can go to the railroad station and ask Pegleg. And it wasn't hard to find Pegleg. And he said, yeah, his name is Mans Lipscomb. That first recording was made of Mans Lipscomb right in this little house in Navasota. It was a shotgun house where they slept in the back. That was the very first record I put out. I had recorded people uh, before then, but I'd never done much with it. It was just a hobby. I had cheap tape recorders, and I was just fishing in the dark, like, you know, trying to get my ears. Come bang, baby. 
please don't go. The way I love you, baby, you never know. Come back, baby. Let's talk it over one more time. Manslipscrim was really much more than a blues singer. When I first heard him, I thought, well, he's kind of a nice old guy who sings a lot of old songs. But he didn't have that ferocity, you know, that lightning head or that low downness at all. He was a real gentleman. He started off with something like Shine On Harvest Moon. He said, well, that is what the white folks like. But then Mac asked him, have you ever heard a song about Tom Moore? Well, yes, sir, I, I know that song, but I don't want you to put that on my record while I'm alive. That's how I got to hear what a songster Mance Lipscomb really was, and he called himself that. He didn't call himself a blues singer at all. And that's why we call the first record Mance Lipscomb, Texas Sharecropper, and Songster. After Max said, you know, this is really the roots of all this stuff, and this will be the record like Lead Belly was for Lomax. This will be your introduction to our Hooli records. When you get home, baby, write me a few of your lines. Get in your home, baby, write me a few of your lines. That'll be consolation. Baby, all my word mine. I'm Bonnie Raitt. I don't remember exactly when I met Chris, but I know that it was through Mississippi Fred McDowell. Fred McDowell was one of my absolute favorite artists, and our Hooli Records was the way that I heard about Fred. In the 50s, there was a recording made by Alan Lomax, and the one that just hit me was Fred McDowell playing Write Me a Few of Your Lions. He starts it real slow and then speeds it up, and it, it's just the most amazing performance I've ever heard in my life. Lord, when you get home, baby, please write me a few of your lines. I wrote to him, Alan, where is this man from? And he actually sent me a letter back saying, Fred McDowell lives in Como, Mississippi, and he gave me the route. I drove up to Como, into the farmyard, and they was just getting off a tractor. <laughs> you know, he was such a wonderful person. He immediately invited me in. Oh, yeah, oh, you like my music. They actually had me stay there that night. They let me stay in their bed. They slept on the couch. I'll never forget what we had for breakfast, too. Eggs and white bread with some molasses. Yeah, he made that whole record the first night. You got to move. You got to move. You got to move, child. You got to move. But one day long, get I bought an Arhuli record when I was 16 years old. It was one of the first folk music records, the Hackberry Ramblers. I'm Linda Ronstadt. I was interested in traditional music. Arhuli had the really rough stuff, you know, that was like Alan Lomax. 
Arhuli Records. It was just like a calling card for me, the stamp of approval. By the time Chris signed these people or went there and had the passion about them, Norteño and Tejano and Tex-Mex music, Delta Blues people, the Savoy family, I mean, I learned so much about those kinds of music because of Arhuli Records. This is Chris Strockwitz again, and we're at the little kitchen dining room in the little house next to the Arhuli building, which also contains the Arhuli Foundation and the down-home music store, as well as Les Blank Films Incorporated. Mighty El Cerrito, right in the East Bay. Well, come on, all of you big, strong men. Uncle Sam needs your help again. Yeah, he's got himself in a terrible jam. Way down in yonder in Vietnam. So put down your books, pick up the gun. We're gonna have a whole lot of fun. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? This building I acquired not too long after we had that big hit with Country Joe doing Feel Like I'm Fixing the Die Rag, and it came out, you know, in the movie. And I had some money. Ed Denson, who had helped me start Tradition Music Company, he called me one evening, 1964, and said, Chris, uh, do you still have your tape machine ready? We gotta record this song that this fellow I know here, he's got a little trio here. It's against the Vietnam War. We gotta get this thing recorded so we have it ready for the big peace march. I finally said, all right, bring them over, you know, and in walked this motley crew of hippies. <laughs> the main man was a guy named Joe McDonald, and I hung the only omnidirectional mic I had from the ceiling on my on my lamp, and I put them in a circle around the mic like that's how I recorded J.E. Maynard's band in 63. And they did 10 takes of One, two, three, what are we fighting for? Next stop is Vietnam. I don't give a damn. You know, it was an amazing song. As they walked out, he asked me, what do we owe you for the tape, Chris? And I said, you don't owe me nothing. And so I asked him, can I have the song for my newly formed tradition music company? He said, go ahead, do that. It was a verbal agreement. Some years ago, Country Joe came to me and he said, Chris, Don't you think you made enough money off of me right now? I said, yeah, okay, Joe, you're a good socialist. If you want it back, I'll give it back to you. You know, I've, I thought that was a fair thing to do. Live and direct right here from the studios of KPFA. I'm talking to the man himself who just about invented Zydeco music. When I first uh, heard you, I think uh, Lightning took me over to hear you. Yeah. You know, because Lightning's wife is, uh, she's a relative to you. Yeah, my, my second cousin. She said, well, he's just playing at this little French club. And there he was. <laughs> We went to French town in southeast Houston. There he was, this lanky black man with an accordion on his chest singing the most low-down blues, but in this weird French patois. <laughs> When you grew up, there weren't really any black guys playing this kind of French music, were there? Well, Or they had some uh, older people playing it, but in, in a different style. What I did, I put a little rock into this French music. You were really the first guy to do that, to put a kind of rhythm and blues right, feeling into the right, French right. music. How did you get that, that idea to mix the French music, which was really just waltzes and two steps, you know, and mix that with rhythm and blues? Yeah, well, you see, uh, uh, in 1955, I used to play nothing but uh, rock music on accordion. Clifton Chenier and the Red Hot Louisiana Band going to be playing tonight a dance in San Francisco at All Hallows Church Gymnasium that's located in the Hunters Point area of San Francisco. We're going to rock them all night long. 
I would listen to Chris's radio show on KPFA, particularly for the blues, but but he would slip in Mexican stuff like Los Pinguinos and things like that, and the German-type oompa-pa bands of Texas. Since it was Chris playing it, I thought, hey, I better give this a listen. My name is Jonathan Clark. I collaborated with Chris on a series called Mexico's Pioneer Mariachis. Uh, Flaco Jimenez, first of all, where does your nickname come from? Well, Flaco means uh, slim or skinny, you know. I guess, was your father fairly slender too? I have some records where he's called El Flaco. Yes, I he, he started The first Mexican recordings, I met this guy, Rumel Fuentes who was working with farm workers in the Rio Grande Valley. I usually traveled with my machines, you know, always at the ready. (laughs) I met Rumel and he got all, oh yeah, all right, that's great. You want to record some corridos? That's right, they got me hip to these corridos, ballad songs, you know. They said, oh, there's this wonderful little duetto in Piedras Negras, Cubila. They're called Los Pinguinos del Norte. And I said, well, the name is wonderful already, the Penguins of the North. They were all real cheerful, and they dressed like, looked like penguins. They had black pants on and a white shirt, playing in these bars with all these local corridos. A corrido is a narrative ballad that tells real true stories. I really have thousands, I would say. They became super popular during the Mexican Revolution when people liked to find out how this general died. He was very brave. This is all oral. This is vernacular music. He really gets Mexican music, the heart and soul of it. Naughty little secret of me is that I don't speak Spanish very well either. I learned a lot of those songs just phonetically. I knew them as a little child growing up and didn't know what they meant at all, but just loved them and felt the passion in them. And he was able to do that. Maybe it's a German thing. Just hit you like a ton of bricks. Especially things like longing, migration across the border to come up here. The ache and the despair of homesickness, feeling of utter desolation that they really understood in Chulas Fronteras, the movie they made, and the Cancion Mixteca, which is kind of the theme song of the immigrants. It's a beautiful song about feeling like a leaf in the wind. By the time I had some money, I wanted to make a film about this Mexican border music. Nobody was paying any attention to this music I was becoming totally addicted to. Les Blank was doing a lot of interesting documentaries. He did that lightning film. He did the Lance Lipscomb one. We drove in my little car all over South Texas. Ry Cooter came along. Ry Cooter had been caught by this mania too, I guess. (laughs) The mania for the corridos took us to the fields, you know, and the people were just so nice, especially once they met a bunch of gringos who were into this, you know. They always invited us, oh, we're going to have a pachanga tonight. Come on over, you guys, you know. Party when you drink and sing and cook food. (laughs) His contribution has been to archive all this stuff that's just never going to find its way under the radio, but needs to find its way to people's ears and has, and inspired people like Ry Cooter and the Sava family, Maria Maldar, Bonnie Raitt, 
His archives have been essential to their careers. They take that root and they build on it in some kind of way that makes pop music, but pop music that's firmly rooted into the soil. He calls stuff that he doesn't like mouse music. Got no mojo to it, you know. This is my my ledger book. I thought I'd be pretty uptown and try to, you know, keep track of what I was recording once I got really into making records, you know. This is all 60 Alex Moore and Butch Cage and Man's Lips Come Back Again in August and Black Ace. Oh yeah, Los Gatos, Big Joe Williams. In 61, okay, I'm back down in Texas here. I was just a lone cat. That I never felt I really wanted to be tied down, you know. I was really perfectly happy to be by myself, really. The only one that I got totally enamored with this uh, young lady in Stuttgart. She worked for a German jazz magazine. We went on a trip and then I came back and I said, sorry, I just, I have to be by myself. She was into totally into modern jazz, which really wasn't my cup of tea at the time, but she took me to hear John Coltrane at the jazz workshop on Broadway, probably in 65. And he had two drummers that night and I'll never forget it. It was the most amazing experience I've had in the jazz world. You were just engulfed in this rhythm machine. The ripple effect of Chris Strackwitz in the world is immeasurable in preserving this music. I can't even imagine what it would be like to not have heard those records. This music that without his care and watering would have withered probably. It didn't matter what country he was from. This is somebody that is born to do this for the music that he loves. What can I do? Just do what you love to do, but, but you got to make a living somehow. I got lucky. The Kate School they actually gave me a placard not too long ago for what I accomplished in life. <laughs> Nobody expected me to succeed, you know, I don't think. Mr. Kate one time said to me, I've heard that you really like some of this American music, and I want to tell you that back in the 40s, a man came to the Mesa. He brought a large black man with him, and the black man, he sang this amazing song about Irene Goodnight. I said to Mr. Kate, it must have been Leadbelly. Yeah, I believe that was his name. And then I said, and the man who brought him was probably Alan Lomax. Oh, yes, it was Mr. Lomax who came to the Mesa and brought Lead Belly to perform. And I took that to heart. Many years later, I took Mans Lipscomb to the Mesa. I took Fred McDowell there, too. He was just amazed, and so were the kids. You know, they have never heard anybody like that. Because I figured, well, if this is what Mr. Lomax did, I should continue. The Passion of Chris Strockwitz was produced by the Kitchen Sisters, Nikki Silva and Davia Nelson, for The Big Pond. Mixed by Jim McKee. Produced in collaboration with Nathan Dalton and Brandy Howell. Deep bow to all the musicians heard in this story, including Leo Garza y su conjunto, Linda Ronstadt, Conjunto Bernal, Maddox Brothers and Rose, the Piccadilly Players, Kronos Quartet, Albert Burbank and Kid Ori, Lightning Hopkins, Mance Lipscomb, Bonnie Ray, 
Mississippi Fred McDowell, the Hackberry Ramblers, Country Joe and the Fish, Clifton Chenier and his Red Hot Louisiana Band, Los Pinguinos del Norte, Ramiro Cavazos, and Rafael Ramirez, and the Sacred Steel of Sonny Treadway. Most all of the music in this story is from the Our Holy Catalog, which is now housed at the Smithsonian Institution and available from Smithsonian Folkways Recording. The Smithsonian acquired Our Holy in 2016 as Chris turned 85, helping to ensure that all the music he recorded and released would survive and remain available to future generations. Our Holy is part of the Smithsonian Folkways family of labels. Our Holy recordings are available at folkways.si.edu, as well as your favorite record store, and on all online platforms. Special thanks to Linda Ronstadt, Bonnie Raitt, Adam Machado, Maureen Gosling and Chris Simon, Howe Shippers, William Griffin, and Jonathan Williger at Smithsonian Folkways, and to Chris Strachwitz, who lights the path. For the Big Pond, we're the Kitchen Sisters. together. You've been listening to The Big Pond, a series of dialogues between Germans and Americans, coming to you from PRX and the Goethe Institute.